Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli sitting in for Dr. Kevin Folta. Kevin, once again, thanks for the chance to do this. And today we'll be talking about ways to capitalize on the natural process of gene silencing to control viruses. It's very, very exciting work. It's been actually described as groundbreaking research. So I'm very happy to have our guest here today, who is Dr. Uh, Nina Mitter, who is a professor at Queensland's Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Welcome, Nina. Good to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And uh, now Brisbane is about as far east as you can go in Australia, as I understand. Is that about right? Yeah, it is, and you know, so it's it's nice to give you a talk from the land down under. It's sweltering heat at the moment, <laughs> so very different conditions <laughs> yeah, that's from right. my side of the planet. Yeah, good point. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, yeah, isn't it great to have this technology that allows us to do this? So, um, Nina, always it, it's kind of a nice idea to give the audience a chance to know something about you. So, why don't you? T- Choose something about yourself, uh, why you got into science, or what you know, what attracted you most about it. So yeah, my career as in in the area of agriculture started in India. You know, it's it's um, I would say coming from an Indian continent, agriculture is in my DNA. I <laughs> just was driven at even at that time in very early stages of my career, you to you know to deliver something outcomes that enhance agricultural productivity it was a strong motivation and driver for me so the roots for this are grounded in my indian heritage i've always been motivated to find innovations which are cross disciplinary solutions and embrace new technologies um, this sort of led me to start my career at indian agricultural research institute in india where i started working in the area and soon realized that crop 
losses due to pests and diseases is a major bottleneck. And I was actually baptized into the world of agriculture by a very wise old farmer. At that time, my head was full of biotechnology and I was telling him, look, oh, you know, my biotechnology can solve all the problems in the world. And he sort of looked at me with misty eyes and told me that if I can give him a handful of good seeds, he can do the rest. So that's how Paul has remained as my mantra as I've moved forward in my career with the drive and passion to deliver something that can reach that farmer's field and make a difference. Isn't that something? Yeah, you know, that I've had experiences like that in my life too where an individual um, said something that reverberates for the rest of one's uh, career and life. So interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And, and so are, are, you, you worked on viruses. We're going to talk about the work in just a minute. But are you, uh, wh- how do you come to this point in your career? Are you a plant pathologist or a molecular biologist? How do you describe yourself? Good question. So I started my career as a plant pathologist with PhD in plant pathology. And as I said, worked for about 10 years in India before moving to Australia, Queensland. Once again, the motivation and passion was that I wanted to do something more, something more with which can reach out to the farmer's field and that gene silencing at that time was emerging as a very, you know, upcoming field. And um, I got a chance to work for that on virus resistance as using genetic modification. So that was the key thing when I moved to Australia. However, as I told you, my underlying passion is cross-disciplinary research and innovation. I'm always open to new ideas, new discussions, crossing boundaries, thinking out of the box. So at present, I know it becomes very difficult to, for me even to define myself. So I'm not only working in the area of crop protection, I'm also developing nanoparticle-based technologies as innovative solutions for animal health vaccines. I'm developing a single-dose shelf-stable vaccine targeting animal health. I also have a substantial work going on on a beautiful tree crop called avocado, and we are trying to solve some disease issues as well as some clonal propagation issues for this wonderful crop. So yeah, the portfolio is diverse, but the thread, the underlying thread is something that can make a difference. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I and I you do your best on that avocado. I just had a an avocado for lunch uh, today. So, uh, yeah, Yay. looking forward to looking forward <laughs> the to more. Most beautiful super fruit you can think of. It's a great fruit. You're absolutely right. Maybe this is the most challenging question of all, but how do you describe gene silencing for a lay audience? Now, we do have Gene silencing, um, and I will just like to tell here a story as well. When I started my career in the area of gene silencing, I was absolutely new. I didn't know what gene silencing is. I reach Australia. This is my first day on my laptop. And, you know, I get the first email that I get is, please don't open your computers. There is an I virus called I love you going around, and it can cause havoc to your laptops. And then the next thing I was reading was this article on gene silencing and how wonderful it is that what is still an enigma for our computer engineers has been solved by plants. They have this beautiful, intricate defense mechanism built in themselves to protect them from all unknown viruses and transposons. So that was my trigger to read more and more about gene silencing. So in very, very simple terms, 
this is a pathway that exists in plants. I'll just like to do here a tutorial before I actually go into gene silencing, if you would permit me, Paul. Sure, sure. Of course. So going back to basic biology, I think everyone will know that we all have DNA. We watch enough TV serials, these on law and order and crime scene investigations, so we know we all have DNA. This DNA is like two threads of wool, so, you know, double-stranded or two threads. This DNA then forms what is called an RNA or ribonucleic acid. This ribonucleic acid is single-stranded. That is, it is only a single piece of thread. And this ribonucleic acid then forms a protein. And this is how we believe everything functions. You know, the double two threads of DNA form a single thread of RNA, forms a protein, and that protein is then responsible for whatever, you know, whether it's humans or plants or worms or flies, it's eye color or fruit aroma or flowering or anything that's happening. That's how we perceive that that's the mechanism. However, sometimes these two threads of DNA can go a bit naughty and instead of forming a single thread of RNA, they decide to form two threads of RNA. Now, this is where the fun begins because these two threads of RNA are now perceived as foreigner by the plant system. They are used to only that single thread of RNA. And plants, I tell you, are not multicultural at all. They don't like these two threads. They have some enzymes or scissors sitting inside them and they just take out those enzymes and chop these two threads of RNA into small bits. So one key thing happening here that this small, this RNA is no longer forming a protein, what we call as gene expression. So no longer this gene is expressing itself by forming a protein because the plants have chopped up these two threads of RNA into small bits. The fun doesn't end there. These small bits of RNA then keep on floating in the plant system. They're very precise. They're only 21 base pair long. And these, when they float into the plant system, they cannot do anything unless and until they find their perfect match. When they find that single thread of RNA, which is their perfect match, they bind to that. And unlike marriages made in heaven, you know, you find your perfect match and you live happily ever after. In this case, they immediately kill their partner. That is, they even degrade that single thread <laughs> of RNA. So once again, there is no protein. Yeah. And that gene is now silenced. So that's how I will describe, you know, you know, <laughs> I hope it makes sense, but that's what gene silencing is. I, 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 I want to stand, as, as an educator, I want to stand up and applaud. That, that, was, that was very well done. That was a lot better than whatever I would have come up with. So <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. So well done. So um, the paper you re- recently published in, in Nature Plants, um, refers to clay nanosheets and uh, so I, w- I want you to talk about that and actually before you, you do um, let me just say as an a- applied plant pathologist with years of experience, decades um, if you had asked me what can you spray on a plant to control viruses I would have said really nothing you know because there really are no viricides, commercial viricides the way there are for fungi 
fungicides. Exactly. But you've come up with uh, something. Yeah. So it involves clay nanosheets. What are what are clay nanosheets? Yeah, and you are absolutely right. You know, once again, as you have mentioned, there are no viricides. And when we were talking of gene silencing, actually, as a mechanism, so what when this gene silencing got discovered, the scientists started looking at ways to protect plant from viruses or other diseases. And the way that it was being done is that you introduce a gene sequence from the virus into the plant, make a transgenic or a genetically modified plant, but you introduce that sequence into the plant in a way that it is always going to form the two threads of RNA or double-stranded RNA, we call it. And therefore, that double-stranded RNA will trigger the gene silencing pathway. It will get chopped up into small RNAs, which we call small interfering RNAs. They will not do anything to the plant system, but when a virus attacks that plant, they will find their perfect match and therefore will kill or silence that gene of the virus and the virus will not be able to multiply. And that's how you will get protection in a genetically modified plant against a virus or any other pathogen that is being investigated. And this is where now the novel concept of clay nanosheets come in. So Paul, as I said, the trigger molecule of gene silencing is actually this double-stranded RNA. The idea was, can we just spray double-stranded RNA on a crop rather than integrating it into the genome of the plant? And maybe some way it enters into the plant system and gives a similar protection without going through the process of modification. And I saw lots of literature coming out on this, but soon realized that the major bottleneck was that when you spray naked RNA on a plant surface, it is very, very uh, easily degradable. In the laboratory, we go to, you know, extreme lengths to work with RNA so that we do not degrade it somehow. And on the plant surface, in the presence of moisture, sunlight, harsh conditions, it was going to last. The protection window, as was being reported by others, was lasting only three to five days or max seven days. So when the motivation was, can we have a way of delivering this double-stranded RNA in a manner that we can prolong that protection window, that this RNA does not degrade by UV light, by sunlight, remains on the leaf surface, doesn't get washed off by rain, and therefore provides us with with a longer protection window. And this, once again, I'm sorry, Paul, I have stories here. I was giving a seminar on gene silencing, and there was this Professor Max Liu. He is currently actually Vice-Chancellor, University of Surrey in England. He was a very well-known nanotechnologist, and he was listening to my talk. He was, at that time, at the University of Queensland, and he told me, come on, you know, let's have a discussion. Maybe nanoparticles can be a delivery vehicle. And that's what led to the genesis of the concepts of using clay nanosheets. And I must also give credit to Professor Ziping Zhu at the University of Queensland, who is the nano brain behind it. So clay nanosheets, if we come to, they are just a natural clay. The difference is this is a positively charged clay just made out of magnesium and aluminium. And the only difference is that this clay has been made to nano size. 
that is one billionth of a meter. So these are really, really tiny, tiny, tiny clay nanoparticles or nanosheets. And when I say sheets, because we have made them um, like a stack of um, stack of paper, if you can think of, you know, a big pile of paper stacked on top of each other. Um, with, we can control the thickness of this pile. We can control the size of this pile. And these are really, really tiny sheets, positively charged sheets. The double-stranded RNA has a negative charge on it. So when we put these clay nanosheets and the double-stranded RNA together, the double-stranded RNA binds to these sheets, clay acts as the carrier, and by acting as that carrier and by that loading of the double-stranded RNA on the clay nanosheets, we get protection from UV, we get protection from enzymes that can degrade that RNA. We have shown that it does not get washed off from the leaf surface. We were able to detect it even 30 days after the spray on the leaf surface. So clay nanosheet as a carrier solved a lot of issues in terms of delivery of double-stranded RNA. Yeah, yeah, some really very interesting findings. Um, and it, let's see, I think, um, as I recall, this, the paper showed that it was stable to washing so that uh, they, they, there was a tendency to stick to the leaf uh, and not lose it in, in the presence of a washing uh, environment, yes. well, you know, to protect it from rain, basically. Yeah. And, um, and also, also, I, I know I, I was interested in the breakdown products, you know, mm-hmm. that basically magnesium, aluminum, water mm-hmm. and chlorine in, in, this, yeah. in the, the clay that you generated. So Absolutely. perfectly, perfectly natural minerals that we get exposed to all the time. Yes, uh, it's you know, and even I think um, this particular clay, which is layered double hydroxide, um, it's also used as a slow release fertilizer. So mm-hmm. it has its own uses. Even the uh, hydrocalchite is also used as an anti ulcer drug in humans as well, which is a breakdown product of this clay. So in terms of its degradability, yes, it is really nice. And also the degradation is very natural. Like you do not have to have you know, anything else do, to trigger this degradation. It just happens in the presence of carbon dioxide and moisture in the atmosphere. And the, uh, the, uh, the, the unit of the clay nanosheets with um, the double-stranded RNA, that's called bioclay. Is that the name you, you all gave it? <laughs> Yes, you know, when we were thinking of, you know, when we started developing this concept, um, once again, we thought, wow, you know, it's such a simple, it, it sort of astounded me also with its simplicity of the thought. Um, I'm not a nano engineer, and I was really thinking, oh, God, you know, what all we'll have to do to make, combine this biological molecule to these clay nanosheets, and we you know, it, soon it was so beautiful to watch that you just need to put the two together, shake them for a while, and it's all done, and they're all mixed. So we thought, okay, this is a wonderful combination of biology and nanotechnology, and so bio is for the RNA or the biomolecule bio in this, and clay, of course, is the carrier. Okay. Well, thanks, Nina. And with that, we'll take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Nina Mitter, a professor at the uh, University of Queensland in Brisbane, Brisbane, Australia. And um, we'll be back shortly. And so thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. As always, we're excited to deliver the exciting stories of how DNA-based technologies are providing new solutions 
for people all over the planet. We're learning more about who we are as a species, the life around us, and how we can produce better food for more people with sensitivity to this big stupid rock in space that sustains us. This podcast is funded 100% by Kevin Folta and comes to you free each week for your listening pleasure. We actively turn away advertisers that could defray the costs of this enterprise because that would simply reinforce the beliefs of the whistleblowing merchants of doubt that believe education is simply a tentacle of corporate conspiracy. You can help by writing a review on iTunes, tell your friends, write a review on a blog, or leave some positive thoughts on the BuzzFeed article about me, Fern Blazer. Most of all, share the beautiful stories of science that you hear each week. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Dr. Nina Mitter from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And um, thanks again, Nina, for joining us. Now, let's um, let, let, let's hear something about what this nano nanoparticle or nano sheet uh, double stranded RNA amalgam can do in terms of plant disease control. Tell us something about that. I think, you know, the potential that it has opened up, it's opened up really endless opportunities. Um, By using clay as a career vehicle now, we can deliver double-stranded RNA targeting in this particular manuscript. Of course, we have shown the proof of concept for viruses, but I think it has opened the door for us to try targeting insect pests, targeting fungal diseases, and this also stems from a lot of literature that is coming across now, you know, from various groups across the globe who are using uh, naked double-stranded RNA sprays to give a proof of concept that it works, you know, that the RNAi spray works against a particular pathogen. But if, almost every time I read such articles, the last statement in these articles is there is a need for a delivery technology. You know, the proof of concept is there, but we need a delivery platform to deliver sure. this concept to make it a reality and therefore I think the clay nano sheets uh, absolutely beautifully delivered that that platform to use it to use RNAi in a drum or RNA interference as a spray yeah and and I think um, as I recall you got 20 days of protection in in the studies you conducted and which is you know that's for uh, disease control products that's very respectable yeah, and also, you know, in this case, it was just because, you know, we have conducted the experiment at that time of publication till 20 days, but our aim is to give a protection window of about, you know, 8 to 10 weeks to crops. Oh, wow. And this becomes wow. highly relevant for vegetable crops, you know, where, you know, you can do that spray and have that protection window last for about 8 to 10 weeks after the yeah, spray. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that would put it in the in a you know in the, in the sort of a, on the outlier, oh, not quite outlier, but um, you know far on the the curve. That you know if you got eight to ten weeks of protection, a lot of fungicides will not give that. So uh, did, now with this this work was all done in the growth chamber, is that right? So there, the field field testing has that been conducted yet, or is that in process? 
you know Paul this work was done in glass house conditions so we have so not not exactly growth chambers but in under in glass house protected cropping conditions okay and uh, um, we have now planned field trials which we will be conducting towards the end of the year there's you know some things that we need to work out getting the site getting proper approvals etc uh, however we are aiming towards doing the field trial hopefully by the end of this year or early next year well we'll, we'll certainly be interested in in those results and uh, really I'm I'm kind of excited about it because I said as I said before which is something you know but many of our listeners may not know there there really is there is no commercial spray that can be applied for virus disease control um, and uh, yeah so this is this is something yeah. worth watching exactly for viruses you know you just control their insect vectors so you use those toxic insecticides yeah. uh, yes. to kill the insects that carry the virus but you cannot directly protect the plant from a virus unless and until virus. you uproot it and burn it yeah yeah and even then insecticides may or may not be terribly effective against viruses but uh, depends on which which yeah. virus but uh, so um, now the the gene silencing effect is is uh, something that takes some time to to gear up for the plant to gear up and produce you know the the um, the uh, the the, pro- the gene silencing process so therefore this would be a preventative type of disease control practice and rather than a curative is that a is that a fair description or or am i incorrect on that no, no, no. You are absolutely correct, Paul, on this description. At present, the way the technology is developed, it will be a preventative effect. So uh, it's, you know, to prevent the virus from coming and infecting the plant rather than a curative effect. Because by the if the virus is already established, you would need really a big source of, you know, huge amounts of, let's say, gene silencing triggers to give any effect. So in this case, we are limiting ourselves to the preventative effect. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I, there's really no way to cure plants from viruses either, except for heat, ther- <laughs> you know, he, ther- thermotherapy, for example, yep. which is just just for experimental plants and breeding stock, but uh, uh, or maybe used for planting stock. But but uh, yeah, but uh, that that's just one of the things a grower would would have to know to do is to build this preventative application into their program before before they you know that it this the disease develops exactly yeah yeah so um so the the um you, you've worked with genetic engineering of of traits and am, am mm-hmm. i did i understand that correctly yes, and then no, you're working with yeah. Okay, and then you and so then you're working also now with these sprayable approaches using that that are taking advantage of advanced genetic knowledge and in fact mm-hmm. some of the same genetic knowledge that could be used in a in an engineered gene engineered approach or a, mm-hmm. a topical application. Mm-hmm. How do you compare those contrast those two general approaches from the sustainability standpoint? And, so and knowing knowing that it's a complex <laughs> what. It is. But for me, you know, personally, both the approaches are wonderful. You know, they have their own pros and cons. Um, Mm. If I look at genetic engineering to make a disease-resistant plant, let's say if we are limiting ourselves to the disease or the crop protection scenario only, we do provide protection for the life of the plant, you know, once we have genetically Mm. modified it. We do have that 
system that will work and protect and we can then grow and then get the seeds and plant again the cons here is of course the time involved in creating that genetic modified plant the not all plants are amenable to genetic transformation you know it's not easy to it sounds like oh you know create a genetically modified plant believe me i've been working with avocado uh four years and we have no success so you know like it's not easy to genetically modify all crops you know it's okay for crop like tomato or some other crops where it has been really worked out so there's the time scale involvement the expense involved in creating a genetically modified plant mm-hmm. also then of course there is the acceptance and the consumer perception issues which goes with you know adoption so oh, sure. there's still a very limited adoption very few examples where genetically modified plants have been you know grown on a large scale for crop protection perspective so and, spe- and especially when it relates to foods food which is directly consumed like fruits and vegetables it becomes even harder so therefore if we look at that scenario versus the topical spray scenario the thing is a the time factor is so less we do not have to look at anything about genetic modification of that plant system all we need is that double stranded rna from the pathogen and we are fine we don't have to design constructs you know put other promoter sequences how will we look at the expression of that particular double stranded rna in the plant whether all plants will have it what is the amount etc here all that is under our control we just need the double stranded rna from the pathogen and then we have the topical application the clay disappears within 8 to 10 weeks and we are giving only a finite amount of that double stranded rna which will provide that protection window it does not get integrated into the genome of the plant so technically there is no genetic modification it just enters into the plant system is recognized by the plant pathway to trigger gene silencing against the virus so i would like to clear any conception here that at this stage we are not looking at disabling or enabling any genes in the plant system it's just for crop protection at present mm-hmm. okay so yes you know that sort of and that that rna will also disappear in 8 to 10 weeks yeah. so it's it's sort of that clean green produce concept for fruits and vegetables so it sort of resonates with more with consumers from that perspective that there's no residual toxicity and you mm-hmm. get a beautiful produce as well yeah that's a really good point that there's no residual toxicity um the not that I'm particularly worried about eating in my case you know I've studied the you know the issues around safety of consuming um you know small small double stranded rnas and double stranded rna in general and i'm not i'm not worried about it but the public you know often is concerned about these technologies but the public in this case you know would should not because even when you are eating a naturally infected you don't know sometimes you know these viruses may not even have any symptoms on the plant mm-hmm. they could be symptomless and still living in the plant or on the leaves and when you're consuming these fruits you actually eat viral dsrna viruses actually when they replicate in a plant system in natural way they do produce this double stranded rna as one of their multiplying step mm-hmm. so you we all consume that anyway we all consume that that's right yeah, anyway yeah, actually the, the, this is this is this is hard for people to see uh, <laughs> because i'm looking at the paper but there the, but your your figure 
six, I think, it, it showed something that it's very hard to describe and without looking at the paper, but it, it, it showed me that in, in naturally infected plants, infected with, with, in this case, cucumber mosaic virus, common virus worldwide, there's this incredible population of small RNAs up and down the genome that we're consuming yeah. all the time. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. You know, this is a naturally infected plant, no spray, no nothing, just virus infected. And I, I do think the acceptance, social acceptance issue is, is probably um, going to carry the day here on this particular issue. Um, you know, I mean, one con is of the of the spray approaches. You've got to manufacture the product. You've got to ship it mm-hmm. with all the carbon footprint effects, mm-hmm. and you've got to fire up the tractor to spray it. But even with all that, I I do my sense is that there would be greater acceptance for many people the, uh, of the sprayable approach than the um, than the genetic engineering approach. I hope so too and because of the versatility that platform opens like we didn't discuss here the issue of pesticide resistance Paul you know even though we develop these insecticides and pesticides pathogens are really clever beasts and they can you know win the still win the war and yeah. uh, we have these issues of pesticide resistance the other advantage of you know Cre- versus creating a genetically modified plant to a topical spray application would be that we can easily modify the bioclay. Yeah, like, you sure. know, if a new strain of a virus evolves or something, we just need to know that new strain and then do the double-stranded RNA for that strain. And maybe in future I'm looking at, you know, that it might give us the potential to have a single spray where we can deliver a cocktail of DSRNA, like whether it's from a fungus or a targeting yeah. a virus or an insect pest. That may, could be, could be. I, I think it opens new doors for disease control. I'm, 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 I think it's a really important paper. The, now, um, it, it, it occurs to me to ask, um, with respect to the sprays, will the double-stranded RNA be regulated as a pesticide in Australia or other countries? Do you have a feel for that at this stage? Um, very good question, Paul. And um, I think in Europe as well, these lots of agencies are looking at us this as well in US also, in Australia also. I've now started sort of talking with the overseas gene technology regulator that we have here. Um, at present, my feel is that it may not, but I cannot be 100% sure at this time point, you know, these discussions are ongoing. And because the key tenet is this double-stranded RNA is anyway present in the environment, you know, for that particular virus. It's there in the plants, it's there in the environment. That's true. We're eating it, yeah. so as we talked about. Yeah. So what about next steps? What um, you've, you've talked about some of those. Any, any next steps you want to highlight before we, uh, we close the program? You know, so uh, we are sort of, um, I must thank here my wonderful team. I have really motivated excellent PhD students, you know, Miss Elizabeth Lizzie Worrell, who is an author on that paper, and then I have Carl Robinson, and I ha- also have wonderful team of industry partners as New Farm Australia Limited. Um, we are together now looking at the next steps for us are crack, you know, formulation development, manufacturing, clay process, looking at, you know, mass production of DSRNA, 
most key to me is also look at the regulatory framework as well as social licensing of this technology so i would be spending quite a bit of my time in the next couple of years you know validating the concepts doing the field trials but also engaging heavily with the community to see you know how the adoption of this technology can make a difference you know well yeah i'm making notes these are good comments and the the last point you made about uh, social engagement is huge i think one of the lessons that we scientists have have got to integrate with respect to genetic engineering is to uh, reach out early and often and engage mm-hmm. the public with uh, new technologies uh, and, and and you know i have a tendency to to want to share what i know and and that's great mm-hmm. but um really engagement is a two-way process and uh, absolutely yeah i think you, i think you've got it i think you've got the idea it's very very I important think so yeah um i'm very yeah. respectful of community sen- sentiments and i think as a scientist we do need to engage with them as you absolutely mentioned as a two-way process not just my views on them and that gives me ideas you know that triggers those conversations actually mm-hmm. fuel the science yeah absolutely well nita uh it's very exciting work and uh it's very gracious of you to join us today um we uh we really appreciate your time if listeners want to know more about your research or about the lab where where would you send them um they can all look at you know google nina meter go to my website or i'm happy if they just send me a line on my email address which should be there available i'll be happy to answer any queries so once again nina thank you for uh for joining us we appreciate it thanks paul thanks for the wonderful opportunity thank you and thank you all for listening to the talking biotech podcast follow us on twitter at talking biotech Write a review on iTunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.